Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Climate Change in the Multiverse. I'm Kelly Tatham, and I'm here with Ish Green, another wonderful friend from the activist community in LA. We met uh, in a grief booth uh, at a march through Extinction Rebellion. So grief brought us together, and ever since then, she has brought me so much joy, and I'm so happy to have her on the podcast today. Welcome, Ish. Thank you, Kelly. I'm excited to be here. Yay. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I'm a writer. I live in LA with three cats and a partner, and um, I'm a pretty recent uh, activist in the sense of like being an organizer. I've um, cared about causes for a long time. I was in crisis intervention, um, direct service with marginalized populations for years, but um, I think as the climate crisis came to the forefront of my understanding and when I fully grasped how serious it was, um, I transitioned from being someone who, you know, would attend protests and sign petitions and donate money, but none of those things were working and it's now a life or death situation. So that sort of catapulted my introverted ass onto the scene. <laughs> <laughs> was that upsetting for you <laughs> have to step out into the world? It was very upsetting. I like my house. <laughs> <laughs> and you have another form of protest that you undertake uh, in probably the most important sphere of our time, which is Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Groundbreaking work and meme creation. Yes, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I think truly it's what keeps us all afloat. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's become like a fun little art project of me processing my trauma around climate change and various other issues. It's great. It's brought me a lot of joy and a lot of laughter and a lot of reflection. I think you are uh, my OG fan, Kelly, which I appreciate. <laughs> how could I not be? <laughs> but I sincerely like, I, that's something I'm like, am I spending too much time on Instagram? And then I like look at what I'm doing on there. I'm like, no, not at all. Like, as long as it's not distracting from the work and every, you know, sometimes I'll um, be scrolling through or like, I'll be going through stories and like one of those ads will come up where it's like, stop scrolling and like go and breathe outside. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> like an actual ad on Instagram is telling me to get off Instagram. That's when you know. Yes, but what are they trying to sell you by making you go outside? Like, is there a truck outside with tacos that they're trying to sell? You know, like, I'm suspicious of all things capitalism. Well, I've never bought anything off of Instagram. Mm -hmm. So they're, I don't know what that they're, what they think that they're getting from me. Um, but ever, no, I get like tons of, it's all, it's all really spiritual stuff generally that comes through. And so I really appreciate that. Although I do, I definitely have like, frustrations with a lot of the spiritual teachers who sell things and even I have um a lot of these there's one account that I follow that I love but uh it's talking about non-duality um and really just like the oneness of being and all of these like this beautiful language explaining it and then he puts his name on the bottom mm. and that weirds me out like if <laughs> You know, if we've actually hit like an objective truth of, of what exists beyond here and, and what we're attempting to return to, like that truth doesn't belong to anyone. Right. And to my mind, it feels 
moving away from the point to be attaching like a human name onto it and like oh this is mine and this came from my brain because I know whenever I figure out something that I'm like oh yes that's the thing it's only because I've learned from dozens or hundreds of brilliant people along the way yeah yeah um it's interesting because in um, medieval times artists used to create anonymously because they didn't want to be arrogant and attach their names to works of usually religious art because mm -hmm. they were trying to glorify something beyond themselves um and so that became more of like a renaissance thing where people began more became becoming more individualized and more like this is mine i created it which i don't think is a bad thing i think it's cool to be proud of what you make mm -hmm. um but it is an interesting relationship to art and to creation to put your name on it especially if you're like we're all one there is no division <laughs> this is mine <laughs> i came up with this i mean like listen when i made my short film uh that i you know wrote and directed and collaborated on it with an incredible team of people including i couldn't have made it without my producer sasha and like but it was very much my baby and because it was born out of my personal experience. And at the end, at the credits, it's my name and it's the size of the entire screen. Like Sasha was making fun of me. She's like, could you have made it any bigger? No. You like, and it's like flashing and it's all these colors because you know, it's like I bled and like cried and like sweat to put that piece of art out into the world. And so like at certain times very much, yes. I'm like, I did this, I did this thing and everyone must know. But then when it comes to like, what I see is like these eternal truths. When I don't feel comfortable attaching my name to it because you know I just happened upon it. I peeled back until I found it, but it's not the only. And the only reason I found it was because I had the tools, which means I was born into a certain environment and with certain privileges uh, that allowed me to get to that place. And it's there's nothing inherently quote unquote special about me that I was able to get there. Yeah, that's an interesting division between, you know, separation between truths and creative art, like creative production, because I think art is so important to us because it's an attempt. I've been thinking about this a lot with my, my memes, like it's an attempt to reach out and be seen. Hmm. And so, of course, we're putting our name on it, right? Um, but on the other hand, you're saying like these truths that have been developed by many, many people, you know, that you've seen by standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. Those are, those belong to everyone. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, like with your meme account, do you see it? Cause right now it's, it's, it's calling out the, the people in power. You know, there's a lot of um, looking at the systems and questioning them, which is, I feel like very much where we're at as a movement and in Extinction Rebellion, which is um, where we met and where I've been actually grappling with a lot of the ideology in that space and a lot of the messaging. And, and I'm wondering, you know, for you with when you're producing that that form of art um are you getting catharsis out of it does it feed your anger um do you want it to change are you happy with where it's at and like what is kind of your artistic emotions with that project when i'm creating it yeah 
Um, I think it depends on the day. <laughs> um, some days, um, some days I can lose sight. I mean, social media is designed to make you lose sight of why you're doing something, right? It's designed to suck you in and to change your brain chemistry so that you need to have those likes and those follows or otherwise you have a, like a drop in your serotonin or whatever. And like, so there are times where it becomes unhealthy. And I've found that, you know, if the, pe the people I tend to follow are really angry for good reason. And so sometimes it's really important to take a break and mm. to not have that constantly coming in. Um, but there's also like such joy in creating and stripping down to the level of a meme where there's so little words, there's so little discussion. It's just a picture and some words overlaid on it to symbolize. It's a, it, it's a very symbolic kind of art form. And, and so there's a lot of joy there. And I like finding ridiculous pictures and you know, reincorporating pictures that I've seen on my feed into, you know, what I'm recognizing as fucked up in the world. Um, so it brings me joy. It brings me stress. It, <laughs> it's a complicated mesh of things. But overall, as long as I can keep focus on like, I'm doing this for me. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this to process my emotions. I'm doing this to say, this is what I see happening in the world and this is what I see that needs to change and pointing it out so that hopefully somebody, I mean, none, nothing I say is, is like groundbreakingly original, but if it makes someone feel less alone, mm. if it makes them laugh, like that's great. I get a lot of joy out of that. Yeah, that's amazing. Where, where are you at with grief right now? Hmm. Well, I watched Heading for Extinction um, be presented last week. And that was the first time I'd ever seen it in its entirety. I've like read through the slides and prepared because I'm planning on giving it myself. Right. This is the so, talk that Extinction Rebellion does, goes around. Yes. The Heading for Extinction talk to educate people on, on the climate crisis and what they can do about it. And... So I'm preparing as part of my activism to present this talk. Um, and in it, they talk about how bad it is in terms of the extinction that we're facing. And Earth has had five major extinctions, maybe like one that was like split up into two, but overall five major extinctions. And we are entering the sixth. And one of the slides talks about how this extinction could be as bad as the Permian extinction where 90 to like 98% of all life, all life on earth died. Whoa. And it's colloquially known as the great dying by scientists. And I think I've been handling my grief by being like, some people will survive, you know, there will be something left, humans are adaptable. And just like reminding myself that evolution always brings life back and in similar forms, like whatever comes back that looks like a crocodile might be a mammal in several hundred million years. 
but it will, there will be something that looks like a crocodile on earth again. And hearing that we're at the level of facing down the Permian extinction was just profoundly troubling. Um, and it's not like that's, it's not like knowing how bad it is is news to me. I've known it for quite a while now. And I've been dealing with it by joining XR and studying and thinking about it and doing whatever like prepper nonsense is not gonna help, but makes me feel better in the moment. <laughs> like, here's how you bandage a wound. Great skill to know. I mean, it's great. Like, you know, if you get, you get wounded, let me know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so in terms of grief, I think I just compartmentalize it to get through my day. But it's so bizarre to be going to a nine to five mm. as Australia burns and Jakarta drowns and Trump strips protections from our water. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's, it's very dissociative, almost like dissociating from the reality to be able to get through the reality <laughs> in my life. Yeah. And just wondering how long, how long until we really start facing the effects? Mm. Yeah, because people are facing them all over the world and we're going about our day to day because we're not facing them. Mm-hmm. And you just wonder, that's something I think about. It's, you know, there are those of us who are working um, to, with, with movements and attempts to do things. There are those of us who are changing our day to day lives. And then the, those are those of us who just aren't doing anything. We're just reading the newspaper and, and kind of gaping. Um, and you wonder what will it take for, for those who aren't engaged to engage, for those of us who are engaged but are still living in ways that aren't fully sustainable. I took this quiz the other day and, well, it was a little hard for me to know what to answer because I move around and live in different people's houses. So mm. a lot of it is dependent on where you're living. And, but I still was over... I wasn't, I wasn't fully sustainable. I was using something like the resources of 1.3 earths. I was like, <laughs> what? Holy crap. You know, I feel like I'm doing everything in my power and yet it's not enough. And I'm doing more than most people are capable of doing because of my privilege, because of the circumstances of my life. And yet it's still not enough. And that's just so huge. It's like, what will it take to, to completely shift? Because we look at what needs to change and it's essentially everything, you know, the nine to five will one day be gone. (laughs) And so it's like, how do we grapple with that now when we're in it? You know, do you ever think that there's an alternative for you tomorrow or the next day to get out of that cycle? Mm. I think there are always ways out if you're willing to deal with the consequences. So could I leave and not have health insurance? Yes, I could. Hmm. I'm choosing to stay because I know what it's like to not have health insurance. 
Um, and because I want to stay alive and be able to go to the doctor if I'm sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think a lot about what are our responsibilities as individuals? What are our responsibilities as communities? And I really fully reject the idea that it's on us to fix our own individual lives and become fully sustainable and live off the grid. Like that's just not realistic and it wouldn't solve the problem. People have been doing that. Mm. They've been going off into the woods and living alone. And what has it done? Nothing. You know, that's not an option anymore for anybody. There is no more isolation. It's coming for all of us. Mm. Wildfires are coming. The seas are coming. And to make this work, it's not on individuals. It's on us as individuals to demand change from the larger systems that are causing it so that we are incapable of being waste-free, of recycling, of being sustainable. Because we didn't build these systems. We're not profiting off of these systems. We don't have the power to change them. Like I can't go out and build recycling centers, you know? Like that has to be a macro project that mm-hmm. I'm here demanding. But yeah, I, I, you know, I'm vegetarian, so I'm not vegan. I could try upping my game. Um, but there's also a part of me that's like, I'm fucking tired and I'm run down and Mm -hmm. people are tired (laughs) and I have so much compassion for that because if we're not gentle and kind to each other and to ourselves, I feel like the capitalists are winning. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's very, very convenient for them to have us blaming and shaming ourselves all the time, crippled in our own guilt, thinking that that's going to solve it if we just become perfect. Mm. That narrative of perfection. So total lie of capitalism, perfection. Yes, yes. Yeah. If we just buy enough reusable containers, the world will be saved. <laughs> I wonder though, and this is something I've been meditating on lately, is that, you know, that's one of Extinction Rebellion's principles is no blaming and shaming. Um, And yet we spend a lot of time blaming and shaming uh, the elite and the billionaires and the corporate CEOs. And do you see a disconnect between having that as a principle and yet not following it when it comes to the quote unquote people in power? Mm, Great question. I mean, I have no problem blaming (laughs) the upper class, but let me think of it as like from an Extinction Rebellion standpoint of no blaming and no shaming. Um, I think people are born to the privileges that they're born into. I don't think there's any shame in that. I think once you come into the world, you are responsible for, um, for at some point grappling with what you have. And... I have a lot of compassion for people who aren't there or maybe don't have the, the capacity to grapple with that in such a way. Um, I'm actually reading a book right now um, called Winners Take All. I think I recommended it to you at one point, but it's talking about 
the um, elite class and how they're very concerned about inequality and they're very concerned about popular uprisings, which they should be. And, and they're looking at it from a lens of like, oh, the private market can fix it. Oh, if we just, you know, the Sackler family, if they just donate a bunch of money to these beautiful art museums, then that makes up for the opioid deaths that they've been perpetrating across America for years. Mm. It's this disconnect that some of them understand, but it's so entrenched in protecting their own privilege and power that I don't know that they see the hypocrisy of it. Mm-hmm. So do I blame and shame them? I blame and shame some of them for sure. And I think there are willful bad actors mm. and capitalism is a system that rewards sociopathy. Mm. So we have a lot of sociopaths in power and that needs to be removed. Like, like that has to stop. Um, I do believe that everyone can be redeemed. I think everyone can come into a better understanding because I've seen it happen with people mm-hmm. who have chosen to wake up, who have chosen to see humans as human beings as opposed to objects. And so in the sense of no blaming and no shaming for me, it's what do you do with the choices when they're really in front of you and you can't get away from them anymore. Mm. And I think everybody has a different level of that. So it's, it's really hard because I, I want to be somebody who doesn't blame and shame at all, but I'm not. I'm somebody who <laughs> would like to see a little redistribution of pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's really hard not to because they're, they've created so much destruction, so much pain, so much death, and they hold, we believe at least that they hold the keys, you know, at least the story in our society currently is that money can change things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, do, I do believe that, but I also wonder if maybe just the way that the money system works is inherently broken and part of the problem and I question, just now I'm questioning, you know, oh, shifting the money, is that really, is that it? I don't know. Um, So I guess my question for you is, if these people don't have the capacity for humanity and human kindness and empathy, because if they did, they wouldn't be behaving this way. Mm -hmm. How, how does that shift for them? How do we create space for people to change or how do we give them the tools so that they can be empathetic so that they can do everything in their power instead of just creating more destruction? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I definitely want to stay away from like taking people and re-educating them in camps, for example, like that gets real dark real fast. Um, I think in terms of this economic system, this economic system is bullshit and is set up to be abused by the privileged. Um, Adam Smith was actually a philosopher and he believed that capitalism would only work if 
because men would be reined in by their own sense of morality and duty to others. And I mean, like, great, good try, buddy, but no. Um, yeah, so what should we do with the rich? I think we should take away their money and their power and make them work for their lives the same way the rest of us do and make them actually do some labor for once mm. and understand what it is. And I think that that would really help them be compassionate because you understand a lot more once you've suffered. Mm. But I've, I've read, I've read these like studies on, on wealthy people not being able to read emotions as much because being wealthy buys you isolation buys you a bigger house with a fence. It buys you a private jet. It bribes you all of these ways of distancing people so that you're no longer having to be super aware of what people around you are thinking and feeling to survive because mm. you are self-sufficient. And it's a very interesting idea. And maybe that's part of the reason that they can't seem to recognize the evil in killing a bunch of people by forcing prescriptions for opioids on them and that, that that's not going to just be fixed by donating some money to a museum. Right. Right. So you're calling for systemic change, you know, that would shift the economic system. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know that I know what would fix it, but I know that it's wrong to value humans based off of the amount of money they make someone else. Absolutely. I started investigating uh, Charles Eisenstein mm -hmm. and following his work. Have you read, do you know, are you familiar with sacred economics? Um, no, I want to read about it though. Yeah. So he talks about shifting from a wealth culture to a gift culture mm. and something called negative interest. So if you hold on to money, it rots. <sighs> yes. And so just like, I think, I mean, money is an energy, right? And I think like the proper use of that energy, it needs to flow. I think when it doesn't flow, it stagnates. And I think that's part of like, is we're hoarding it, right? And it's just like, it can't operate that way. Just holding on to money, I don't think will ever work. And that if we were to return to sort of just like a trade gift barter flow system where it's not about like how much you have, it's about like how much it circulates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's actually, um, maybe this is also what he is thinking of, but I, there was a turn of the century econo economist who came up with this idea of um, money that expires. So similarly, it would be forced out into the public sphere. You would have to be building things. You would have to be buying products. You would have to be paying workers because your money would expire. So there wouldn't be that hoarding that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's leading to collapse right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot because in, in XR and in, in, in the States, the focus has been on Chase Bank and getting people to divest because Chase is the number one fossil fuel funder and, you know, getting people to shift to other banks or demand that Chase pulls out of fossil fuels. And all of that is imperative. But I'm wondering, like, what's the next step after that? And it's like, it's just completely rethinking the way we 
we use money altogether. Like the whole system needs to, we need to build a new system instead of just kind of moving the, the money around in this current system. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, so much, so much of the, the system is based not on actual value, but on perceived value. Mm. Um, so for example, uh, a tech company like WeWork can lose millions of dollars, maybe billions, I'm not sure, a year, and yet be valued at like so much more than that. And it doesn't make logical sense. So much of our, our economic system doesn't make logical sense. It's tied to nothing. Yeah. And that's why we have boom and bust cycles that destroy lives. Yeah. Because it's, it's a fairy tale. Well, I think, I think, and I think we forget that, or I, I think that most people don't have that awareness that money is a social construct, that it's something that we invented, that it doesn't really exist, but like, like that's pretty much most things in society are social constructs, like, like gender, like the way that we live, like the way that we, well, I mean, obviously it's very complex, right? Cause I always want to go into like partnerships and like the, how that's been constructed by society. And yet like there are biological realities and there are biological realities to gender, but they're just not the story that we're telling mm-hmm. in the public sphere. And I think that is what people, that is something that people really struggle to grapple with. And this is something I've been thinking about in terms of our movement in in XR, we're seeking to disrupt business as usual. And we're going out and we're protesting on the streets. And yet I feel like people have really normalized to that. And they're no longer reacting in a way that is useful to uh, activating them to do more. And I'm wondering what, what it would look like if we started disrupting more social norms. Hmm. Like, I'm really interested in all of these strong activist men who are willing to put their bodies on the line and get arrested, I would like to see them disrupt gender norms and go out wearing dress. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I think that that would be very interesting both to society and to them (laughs) on a personal (laughs) level. Yeah, I gotta admit, it's been kind of strange being in XR because for the first time in many, many years, I'm around a bunch of straight men, straight cishet men. Um, and it's just like, oh, I forgot that I'm gonna get interrupted and ignored. Oops, that was, that was nice to forget. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, yeah, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of room for growth and for recognizing, I mean, like if you look at our region group, it's mostly women mm-hmm. and people. Like, I find that very interesting mm-hmm. because once all the fancy, like, tactical and destruction is done and we have a chance to build a new world, you know, say this works and that's what we get, what's going to happen next? Are you going to step down and let the region take over? Because uh-huh. we have to have it if it's going to be a new world. Like, I firmly believe that we must... I mean, you know, I'm always on this soapbox, right? <laughs> like we have to have the world that we want ready to go before we destroy the, the, the old one. Absolutely. And I think that that's a huge, huge um, 
missed opportunity in Extinction Rebellion, the fact that regenerative culture isn't the actual center of the movement. You know, it's one of the 10 principles. We need a regenerative culture. It's like, okay, yeah, that's the whole point. Like, <laughs> that's not a principle. That's like period, end of sentence. Like the <laughs> culture isn't regenerative. <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing here? And the fact that, yeah, the fact that the movement isn't centered around that, I think I really think that Extinction Rebellion is incredibly masculine. And I think that the way that we're going about things is incredibly, and I, maybe masculine is the wrong way to describe it because I don't want to use masculine as a negative um, because it's not. And like what we're seeking is balance. It's just the world is so drastically out of balance because the masculine has been so hyperextended and the feminine has been so oppressed. And what we need to come back to is a balance of equality. And I'm just not seeing that in Extinction Rebellion. I'm not seeing that in our movement. And I'm not seeing that enough anywhere in the world, really. Yeah, I would agree. And um, I remember like one of my first general meetings I went to, um, it was practically all men who spoke, who spoke in leadership positions. And I remember looking at that and being like, okay, well, non-hierarchical, organizing, I guess, if I want something to be different, I have to do it. So I'm going to step in and try to be representative of other genders, other sexualities, people in general who are not white cishet men. Um, and I've been thinking about that a lot of like, how do we demand our place and reshape these norms that you're talking about so that when I suggest something, it's not resuggested 30 seconds later and suddenly is the best idea anybody's ever heard. Mm. Um, so I think it's going, I don't know, because like, I don't want to have to become aggressive. I will. <laughs> if you poke me, I will. <laughs> but that's what we want to be moving away from exactly exactly so that would be a reaction it'd be reactive in supposed to like i don't know how do we then bring in that i mean i'm not a particularly feminine person i'm not i'm pretty sharp-edged but yeah but modeling that culture while demanding our right to take up space mm. Mm. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot, like if we look at the science and what it says about social collapse and the possibilities of social collapse, if you only engage with the climate science, it seems very clear that social collapse is inevitable and it will happen soon. Yes. And I wonder if we're wasting our time attempting to dismantle the current systems instead of just building new ones. Mm. if we're so low on time, you know, and also there's, there's some really great thinkers out there. I've been engaging with the work of Buckminster Fuller and Albert Einstein and Martin Luther King Jr. And they're all saying the same thing that you just have to turn away and build the new thing that you can't, 
Einstein says you can't simultaneously prepare for war and peace. Mm -hmm. And and yet I understand how important it is for us to be dismantling the systems and putting pressure on the systems and getting the money to shift. Um, so I know that that's part of it because it's never black and white. It's never just one thing or the other, but we're really only focused on the dismantling and yeah. we're not at all focused on the rebuilding, not in any sort of um, tangible way. And, and I also think that that's part of why we're having a, um, an outreach problem. I think that's part of why people are struggling to come into the movement when you think that it would be so easy with everything that's going on in the world, that there, there isn't a safe space for them to land and build new things because it's not everyone, not everyone wants to dismantle and, and not everyone should. And the way that the dismantling is done is quite confrontive and abrasive and intense. And, and that is not, to my mind, I'm seeing more and more that that may not be the way forward. Hmm. I think, I think it is necessary to be confrontive and I think it is necessary to work towards dismantling because what else can we do? Mm. The options are <laughs> go off into the woods and hope a wildfire doesn't kill you and your family or stay and try, try to fix something. And I think that in my mind, revolution is coming. It's a matter of what shape will it take? Mm. And so the very dysfunctions in XR, I think, are very tied to, A, how the system is currently set up to be catering to male privilege and um, racial hierarchies, although I think we're trying really hard to address those um, with varying degrees of success. Um, I think we do a better job of, of being aware of racial hierarchies than of gender hierarchies. Mm. Um, but I think there's a place for, for dismantling. And I think that this is better than what will probably come next, which is violence. When people start starving, they get violent. Right. When refugees can't find work, when they can't survive, they have to go somewhere. And people react to that violently. Mm-hmm. So, so how do we build? I think the non-hierarchical dysfunction of XR is also the way forward. I see it as a practicing of how to reach consensus without one fearless leader mm -hmm. making the calls. And I think it is hard for people to find their way in if they're not super motivated. Because I was talking to my friend who's sort of on the periphery right now, but is really interested in getting more involved. And they said, people are super into XR, but they don't, they're not in XR. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do we get them in? Um, it, I think I'm learning to give myself permission to take more responsibility. Mm. But I've been raised in schools where 
I turned in work and was graded and told if I did it right. I have had jobs, you know, so I've always had a boss to be like, am I doing this right? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I've been trained to have direct feedback from a superior my entire life. This is how I know how to operate. This is how I know how to be successful and functional in this society. That's how all of us are. Mm -hmm. We're not the bosses. Mm -hmm. So we have to unlearn that and be able to give ourselves permission to be like, oh, there needs to be a leader that's not a man. Mm-hmm. I need to be that leader now. Mm-hmm. Which is scary and I, I hate it. <laughs> is it getting easier? Um, I think so. I think so. I mean, I'm still, I still feel, I've been in XR for so, for like months now and I still feel new. Mm-hmm. But, but I think so. And I think also it's made me recognize the gifts that I have that others do not mm. because I see people doing stuff and I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me, let me help. Let me fix this and let us move forward with your gifts and mine <laughs> together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think the process is messy and abortive at times and, also the start of what we want. Mm. Mm-hmm. What do you want the future to look like? I want to live in a hobbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, I, um, uh, I want every building we build to be covered in plants. Mm. I want us to replant our forests and I want everybody currently in power to be removed from power Mm. and put to work in the fields. So reparations is important to you. Um, Reparations for specific things like slavery. Yes. Mm -hmm. Redistribution is very important to me seeing what a world would look like if everyone's debt was wiped out Mm. if people had to treat animals with respect and the natural world as though it has rights of its own and is a participant in our world I just, I don't know exactly what model of society I would follow because I don't want to go back to like never traveling and never exploring new places and and going to the movies. Like I love these things and I want that richness of life without all of the death that it causes. Mm. So. Do you think that's possible? um, Not in the way that we have it now. Yeah. I think that there's ways to make air travel sustainable. I think there are ways to, to, to create art and share it that are not you know, wasteful. 
Mm -hmm. um, or that perpetuate stereotypes and, and harm people, we're going to have to give up a lot. We're going to have to shift our values, which I'm ready. I'm ready to do it because I'm so tired of like in LA in particular, I don't think people who don't live here know that this, but the billboards are everywhere. Everywhere you look is a billboard mm. and it's screaming at you to buy things, to watch things, to consume, consume, consume. And it gets into your brain and it changes you. Mm. And I've noticed since moving here that I've become more aware. I don't know that I've become more consumeristic. I hope not, but probably, but I know for a fact I've become more aware of what is stylish, of what is cool, of what the latest movie is, of what the latest gadget is. Like I just know this now because it's shoved in my face every day. Mm -hmm. And we have to, we have to shift our values so that that isn't being drilled into us every single moment of every single day. Um, so that we can let go and value the things that I think most of us actually do value, human values that are universal. Americans don't want to waste. People have so much guilt around wasting and how many times are we told by our parents to finish everything on your plate? Everybody heard that. Mm -hmm. It's not normal to waste. We had to be taught to waste. Mm. There's a really great um, Thoroughline podcast on this called The Litter Myth. I don't know if I talked to you about it, but it was um, like the trash system and single use disposable goods was created by plastic companies and people had to be taught how to throw away trash. Oh my God. Because everything used to be reusable, used to be, you know, able to decompose for the most part. We were taught to throw things away and shamed. Like the OG shaming of litter bugs was created by plastic companies. Whoa. Whoa. That is so hard to sit with. But that is like, absolutely. Because if we can be taught this, we can be untaught it. Mm. We can unlearn it. Mm. Yeah, it, that's just like everything has been taught to us. And this is what... I always come back to it's like we have to question everything every single thing I mean even you know as soon as you start engaging in physics you know in quantum physics and the micro world you recognize that like even what appears to be real right in front of our eyes our own bodies is not at all the way that we think it is it's mm -hmm. not at all the way that we experience that there's this madness going on at the at the minute micro level that we really don't even comprehend and so then it's like if we're building the world on <laughs> basically like a complete lack of understanding a complete uncertainty and then what comes out of that it's just fabricated stories it's just layers and layers and layers of stories that we tell ourselves and stories that we've been taught and marketing and 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 beliefs of the culture and none of it none of it is real <laughs> and that's how i spin out personally <laughs> 
but you know, it's not, it's not incredibly useful to, um, to go down those paths all the time. You know, it's, it's interesting and it's fun. And sometimes I think I use it as a way of a, a form of apathy, um, to say, Oh, well, nothing's real. It's very easy just to like completely check out. And, um, the way that I can also use spirituality or um, mysticism, magical practices as a way to check out. Um, and yet, because I, because I know that the tangible world is so real, I recognize that the, the problems at hand are coming, um, are here. But also I do hope that the, the knowledge of the, the quantum realm, the knowledge of magic, the knowledge of spirituality could be something that would save us. And we haven't really dug into this too much previously, but we've talked about witchcraft a little bit. And I wonder if you have any practices there and if you see those tools helping you and helping the world. Um, so my connection to witchcraft is a way of reconnecting to the divine in in life in the world in nature in us in connections that we like you said don't fully understand and so for me uh, like a, a big part of magic can be seen in the mysteries of science the things that we have been able to learn and the things that we don't yet know i think magic and science are very closely tied to me because i'm not out there doing the experiments myself i'm learning from scientists what their results are and trusting them similarly to how people trust the interpretations of a priest Mm. And so for me, there's nothing more magical than discovering a fact about the world that we didn't know before. And there's such wonder in that. Mm. And if you think about it, what do we think of as magical? Like if somebody could foretell the future, they would be incredibly magical, right? We have astronomers who tell us when the next eclipse will be. We already have magicians, they're scientists, but we don't recognize that because it's been so mechanized. Mm. Drilled down from its true nature, which is wonder and connection to that, oh, how can I, create this into something that can be sold to someone. Like the harnessing of science to profitability, um, hey. of studies to whoever's funding them, mm-hmm. is, a, is to me is a kind of profaning of the sacred. Mm. Wow. I've never thought of it like that in terms of, you know, we know when the next eclipse is coming and that's predicting the future. Wow, that's such a, you know, we do look at, I think the the cultural belief is that the world is a machine in a sense. 
and that we're just operating in and around it and that there's this separation but and that it's a tool for us yeah that's so interesting to like because there's so many people who don't buy into astrology and yet i have to be full disclosure i'm one of them (laughs) so you don't you, you don't engage with astrology at all i don't interesting i think it's fun but i don't think it's it's not real for me Sure. What's your sign? <laughs> I'm a Sagittarius. Okay. Okay. I, I actually, honestly, like I'm, I'm still a newbie to astrology. It's, it's such a, a vast, a vast pool. Um, I think it's an interesting really. way of telling stories and connecting and understanding the world. I don't think it's going to tell me anything. I don't already know. I'd be curious for you to have like your birth chart done <laughs> and to like really dig into because like our sun sign is just w- one small aspect and that's like people like you know they'll be like oh well i'm a sagittarius or i'm a virgo or whatever and like that's who i am and it's just like oh no 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 there's like there's your sun sign there's your moon sign there's your rising there's your mercury there's your and like it goes on and on and on and it's not just those houses it's like the positions of where they are and like the trines and the conjure it's like, it's very mathematical, um, <laughs> but then it's, and then, but then it's um, latched into all of these archetypes. Right. And I mean, we know archetypes are very interesting. That's what uh, Carl Jung was very engaged with Joseph Campbell. Um, you know, you, we see archetypes across different fields of research and different, um, interests and in my time researching the true nature of reality archetypes keep coming up Mm. and um and so for me what's interesting with astrology is like it's the positioning of the stars and the cosmos and the planets um and it's paired with these archetypes and we do know that the moon's movement affects us you know it's it pulls the tides and we know that hospitals overstaff on full moons. You know, there's a lot of what we call hard scientific facts to back up the reality that the moon's movement affects us. So to my mind, why wouldn't the movement of other celestial bodies affect us? You know, if they're, they're all pulling, they're all dancing around, they all have, you know, gravitational effects on us. And so then it's just like, where does, where do the archetypes come in? What's associated there? Um, and where did that come from? Which I don't have those answers, but in my time spent researching astrology um, for myself and other people, I've come across very, very deep reflections that have offered me uh, mirrors to understand myself better. And I'm not prescriptive about it, and I don't buy into any of it 100%, but I don't think we're meant to. I think it's meant to be these invitations and these offerings. Um, And so I definitely believe that like that point when we entered the planet, you know, or like the time and date of our birth, like, and then, because like our astrological charts, it's like a frozen blueprint of what was going on in the cosmos at the time we came into being. Um, And I think that that we can look at that as a blueprint for what we came here to work with. At least that's been my experience. Um, so I'd be curious as a, as a skeptic, <laughs> if one day you were to, to dive in and, and maybe you'd still, still, you know, not find anything there and 
obviously it's completely valid, I think. But I'd be curious what, what might come up. Um, well, I have at times been more interested in exploring that. I like my particular sign. It's a fire sign. It's a philosopher sign. It's, you know, um, I, uh, I was drawn to that and sort of explored it a little bit. Um, but the thing that really made me stop exploring it mm. um, is when I realized that from the time when this system was developed in ancient Greece or whenever, the stars have shifted mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they are no longer in the same positions that they were and that they need to create a 13th sign to, uh, to accommodate this and nobody gives a shit. And I'm like, you can't say you're scientific and like have a basis in reality if you do not follow the science, which is that stars move. <laughs> totally. And, and do I believe that we are affected by the natural world, like the moon and, and the sun? Absolutely, I believe that. And I believe that there are many things that we don't understand about how we are affected by those things. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that system will tell me who I should marry, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think anyone should base a partnership <laughs> on uh, an astrological chart. However, I recently dated someone <laughs> Venus and Scorpio. <laughs> And uh, I should have I should have looked into that more before we moved forward, you know. Or Scorpios. <laughs> Venus and Scorpio in the like Thoth tarot deck. I think it's like the what is it? The Five of Cups. Whatever. It's like debauch, and it's just like this awful dripping like that energy. Like because like if we're, I totally hear you on like the stars have moved and like. Does that even make sense? I don't have an answer to that. And I also have that question and I've just pushed it out of my mind because I'm like, that's no fun. Um, but I totally respect like the skepticism around that is like 100% valid. Um, but if we're just to like look at like the archetypes of Scorpio, the archetypes of Venus and they're pairing together and that relationship, I think that's very interesting. And um, yeah, in, in certain parts of my chart, things resonate so much. And then in other parts, they don't resonate at all. But I look at all of it, including like, there's all these other personality tests we can do, like the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. And then there's something called, um, oh my God, what's it called? It's like my body graph. I'm totally blanking on the name right now, but it's like basically like astrology, but like for energy and like this energetic blueprint of like, if you're like a projector, a generator, a man, like how energy operates in your body. It's very interesting. Um, and I don't look at any of them as hard truths. I just, again, look at them as invitations to like for more self-reflection. Um, and, you know, if something confronts you, you go, oh, okay, well, that's something I need to deal with. Or if something comforts you, you know, I've definitely found a lot of comfort. And when I discovered my moon was in Pisces, I was like, oh, because the moon represents your emotions. And I've always been this very like watery, sensitive person. And yet my son is in Virgo and Virgos are just supposed to be this very particular way. And I have a lot of those traits, but also I don't resonate with all of it. And I was like, where do all the tears come from? <laughs> and so when I found out I was moon in Pisces, for me, that was like coming home. I was like, I feel so validated. <laughs> But I've also been indulgent in my emotions and I've also like allowed 
um, I had a bit of an addiction in terms of, in terms of emotions. But then I learned more about Pisces and I recognized that like, that's one of the archetypes is Pisces is the addict. So when I first engaged with that, I clearly didn't research enough to know that like, you're not supposed to like fall into that and let that overtake. Like that's supposed to be something that, you know, you find balance with and boundaries. So, you know, it's just all opportunities for reflection. Um, and as long as we're not completely letting them, as long as they're not guiding, as long as they're just kind of reflecting, then I think it's, it's all, it's all good and interesting. Yeah, and I, I um, read tarot, and I really love having, um, you know, tarot done with me from others, because I see that as a form of, of pulling out symbolic stories hmm. that, like you said, like you get that resonation when you see something true. And you can look at the same card at various different times and see a picture on it that you didn't see before. And that's because that picture suddenly has a symbol for you for something that you need to deal with. And I think it's a way of opening up and looking at things in a different way, like therapy. Um, and I think it can be an extremely useful tool for bringing stories out into the open, bringing behaviors and patterns out into the open. And so astrology as like a reflection of like, what's going on with me? Where are the ways that I'm not handling my shit? How can I, you know, negotiate that? How have other people who are Pisces negotiated that in the past? Maybe there's sites that will be really helpful for how to, to not, you know, drown in your own emotions. I think that could be really useful. I think it bothers me when the magical community ignores the fact that we can find herbs that will heal sicknesses mm -hmm. in favor of like, sit here with this crystal and read your chart. Right. Right. That's real magic. Mm -hmm. We can interact with the natural world in such a way as to heal ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's just mind boggling to me. Yeah. It feels to me that there's a lot of bypassing in the spiritual and magical communities and I'm always grappling with that, like, because I, I know that there's something to, you know, staying positive and focused and like cultivating joy and prosperity in your own life, because then you're able to share it with others. And yet there's so much going on in the world. And if we're not dealing with it or at the very least talking about it, then what are we doing? Mm -hmm. And that's something that I haven't come to terms yet with. And I, I don't know when I will. I hope that, that, that there's a, a middle ground that I will be able to find in, in merging my spiritual side and my activism side and my belief in magic and my knowledge of science. Mm -hmm. That's something that I'm constantly trying to balance. Um, All of those things are extremely interrelated. Mm. I, I think it's very unhealthy when they're not. Mm. I, I see that as like a type of numbing. Mm. If you can't, if you like, you can't face the darkness, how are you actually in the light? Yeah. Like true leaders face the darkness every day. They mm. sit with it every day and they're not afraid of it. Mm. There's this story, um, a Buddhist story, I think, where 
the Buddha is visited by a demon, by the devil. And instead of rebuking him, instead of rejecting him, the Buddha opens the door and invites the devil to tea. Mm. And that symbol has stuck with me. I think it's from Siddhartha. It's stuck with me throughout the years because your devil's not going to leave just because you shut the door on it and try to hide it and try to ignore it. It's going to be there. So you might as well invite it in for tea (laughs) (laughs) and have a civil conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder if that's something we can be doing more of in the movement in in terms of other people, the people that we're deeming as evil. Mm. Uh, And I recognize like we don't have access to everyone, but that's something I'd like to see. And maybe, gosh, that I need to do more of myself. I'd like to see that in other people, but no, I don't want (laughs) to. But I do think I've been, I I have been working on that. I have been, this is something we, we were talking about right before we started recording was like the, allowing uh, being humble when other people are offering critique mm-hmm. um and being open to other world views mm-hmm. and i found great deepening in that when i instead of being reactive just going okay okay that's my ego talking that's my ego saying like no i don't like it um and if i can sh- just shush for a second and go like, okay, what do they have to say here that's valid? And do I have to react in a way, do I have to be reactive? Or can I just go, thank you for your offering. And I appreciate that. And like, how do we, can we, let's, how, let's find a way to keep moving forward. That is, that is finding the balance, that is finding the middle ground, that is being humble to, um, to their, their truth because as we know like we're all living in our own truths we're all living in our own worlds there's no even though there are objective realities each personal truth is valid even if it isn't quote unquote right so yeah i'm just kind of rambling now but (laughs) that is something that that i would like to foster more of in my life continue to foster is is the opening up to the devils, the evils, the unknowns, um, and the, the discomfort of opinions that I believe are wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. I like, I like that. I was thinking more like internal demons, but you're right that we demonize other people. And I think XR in particular is a movement that's I'm drawn to because I see it making overtures to people we demonize. Um, sometimes in, not great ways, but, um, but as a movement, I think the goal is to bring people in, in a forgiving way Mm. and in a, in a generous way. Mm. And so how do we then have tea with the enemy and so that we can stop seeing them as the enemy? And I was raised by very conservative Christian parents who we don't share any of the same political values, but I also honor them for giving me my sense of integrity. Mm. They are the reason that I have integrity. Mm. They taught me this Mm. and they're not evil, you know, and I've taught them that gay people aren't evil. I think, I don't know. (laughs) 
we're wasps. We don't talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I, I like that idea of fostering conversation. It's, it's hard because what do you do when the other side isn't willing to either? But I think if you just get people working on a project together, things, things are easier. Yeah. And I think, you know, the project is fixing the system. It's just a matter of people recognizing that that's the project we all need to be focused on, either dismantling or rebuilding. Um, And when I was speaking to earlier, like, do we need to focus on dismantling? I just say that as kind of, you know, a a question. I do, like, that is part of it. But I think that, especially where someone like, I was just listening to Martin Luther King's um, Nobel speech this morning and he just talks about like just love, just coming back to love, just coming back to love. And that like not, and you know, he was very anti-capitalist. He had a lot of strong things to say about dismantling that system. Um, And I don't want to whitewash his message by being like, oh, just love each other. But like, I think that there are, ways for us to be incredibly disruptive from a place of love instead of a place of fear. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what that will look like if we're able to just completely center unconditional love Mm -hmm. for everyone. And, you know, sometimes unconditional love might look like someone who's had billions of dollars in wealth their whole life going and doing hard labor. Like, that's really the might be the best thing for their character that is that could be like just wholehearted unconditional love what they need to now experience in this lifetime um so yeah it's just it's like how do we incorporate that into the movement how do we center how do we center love in the movement so that we can be just vibrating at a place where people recognize that that's our center that's our core mm-hmm. and that you know you can't if you're truly coming from that place, I don't think the argument can be contested or whatever it is that we're trying to convey can be attacked if we're truly centering love. I mean, everything can be attacked, but I think it takes the wind out of people's sails when you see people who are coming from a place of um, profound love. Mm -hmm. And I think XR aspires to that. Mm-hmm. and I don't see other movements aspiring to that mm-hmm. and we must Martin Luther King Jr. was a genius it is so much harder to to come from that space than to come from rage and to come from righteousness which is toxic mm-hmm. and so I would like to work on that for my own self and also you know you're giving me ideas about what regen needs to look like here in LA, like what can I do to bring that about? Maybe just start conversations. Maybe just hold space for people to come and have conversations about these things. Because it needs to happen. It must. It we must. Go up. Get those men in dresses. <laughs> I, I told this to someone last night. I told this to a guy, a straight guy, straight white, cis dude. And he was like 100% on board. He was like, wait. Yes. 
Yes. Maybe <laughs> you didn't know you could do that already. Oh, but I'm like, they just need to be given permission that it's like, this is the disruption. Like, this is not a commentary on your sexuality. Like, this is not a commentary on your identity. This is how you disrupt the system. So they're all just afraid that they're going to enjoy it. Like, come on. <laughs> Probably would. Dresses are great. Dresses are fun. We should all be like, I always feel like, like, I'm very happy being in a female body because I look at men and I go, that doesn't seem like much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really enjoy all the accoutrements that come with being, you know, a femme in this society. And I've like, let, I've given up some of them, you know, I don't wear much makeup anymore. And I've grown out my body hair because I just like, that feels disruptive to me. And I'm like, anything with my body that could be a political statement, I'm like, let's do it, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just like, that's, that's where I'm at right now. It's like, how do we disrupt with love? How do we disrupt with softness? How do we disrupt in ways that are just provocative that are gonna like reach people? Cause it's, I don't, I've tried provoking people with, with my fear and my anger and doesn't generate more of the same. Yeah. 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 It's not the way forward. Yeah. Yeah. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Hey, happy Martin Luther. Is it, is, is it today? That's why all this stuff was on Instagram. This yep. makes a lot of sense. I don't know what day it is. I don't prescribe <laughs> to linear time. <laughs> Um, just floating out here in space time, <laughs> waiting for time to fold over on itself. Are we there yet? <laughs> um, patiently waiting. <laughs> waiting. Actually, that's something I've been working with, patience, and I've gotten a lot better. Uh, well, Ish, thank you so much. This has been um, really, really nice to connect with you and and to hear your thoughts and. Um, really helps me um, reframe some things and recenter some things and rebalance um, my um, my current thought processes. It's this such a joy. It's so good to talk to you. <laughs> well, um, would you, uh, we'll link to all of your stuff, anything you want to share, but is there anything you want to tell the people before we, before we leave them? The world is ending. Join up. <laughs> or a new here. world is starting. <laughs> the new world is starting. Get on board. Get on board. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't be co-opting your end message. That was <laughs> That's totally okay. <laughs> um, any social media handles you want to plug? Uh, your meme account? Um, sure. At nice while it lasted. Yeah. Log in for some great anti-capitalist, anti-supremacist, <laughs> dismantling, dismantling memes. Um, yes, the world is both ending and starting at the same time. And uh, we need all hands on deck. Slash, we just need everyone aware. I could go off on another tangent. I won't <laughs> say that for I just listened to this amazing speaker, um, Bayo Akomalafe, and he said something about like, needing hands on deck is like the wrong thing and I haven't fully conceptualized that and I'm like oh no is this a non-duality thing where we just have to be like it's not about doing the work right like but that's doing the work as a stepping stone to be anyways 
we could go on forever. Thank you so much, Ish. It was a pleasure. All right.